Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Garage. We are so happy to have you alongside us for this new journey in our podcast form to bring you our unique brand of innovation. The team and I are so grateful that you take a short amount of time today in your already busy schedule to talk shop with us in the retail media world. So grab a stool, a milk crate, a box, I don't care, lean on the tool bench and get ready to get your hands dirty with Evan and I. My name's Dan Massimino. I'm here alongside, as I said, my great friend and colleague, the master of the maker space, the prince of this podcast, the brains behind the garage, Evan Havorka. Come on, Evan, come on in. Thank you for that gracious intro, Dan. Happy to be here today. Glad you're here. As I said, I'm Dan Massimino, D-Mass as I'm called, DJ Massa Diesel if I'm DJing my kids' middle school dances. I'm just here to maintain order and structure, so God help us. I've got over a decade in the grocery industry, from bagging groceries to building shopper marketing programs, to now doing marketing for Albertsons Media Collective. And now I'm here with you to learn alongside some of the best and brightest the industry's got to offer. Let's talk a little bit about format here. So we at The Collective believe wholeheartedly in moving our industry forward. And so in order to do that, there has to be this commitment in finding or sometimes forcing bright spots, learn fast, fail fast, and evolve, scale and replicate those as quickly as possible. So to do so, we've created a -a one-of-a-kind makerspace where some of the greatest minds in the industry come together, geek out on retail media solutions, and help unlock the best version of retail media and what it can be. And now we want to share that wealth of information with you. We got a lot to do today, a lot to get to, so let's get started. Now, as you may hear, Evan is not alone in his space. So Evan, heads up, if you didn't know, you're not alone in your space. There's somebody else there with you. (laughs) It sends to presence. Yeah. Our guest in the garage today has been called by some the complete package of strategic digital marketing and breakthrough content development with unmatched work ethic. Man. That's an endorsement. Ben Sylvan from the Trade Desk. Ben, come on in. Ben's the GM of Data Partnerships at The Trade Desk uh, with what, a little around three years now, Ben? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. I don't know who described me as that, but I I appreciate it. Um, It's a little hyperbolous, but I'll take it. Um, Take it, man. Own it. I'll I'll own it. I'll own it today. Yeah, I've been to the Trade Desk for uh, more than two and a half years. I'm vice president of data partnerships for the Trade Desk, and I'm really excited to be here. Our partnership with Albertsons has been wonderful, and I feel very privileged to be here with you guys. We're thrilled to have you. I'm not going to lie. I did a little bit of of light LinkedIn stalking. So Northwestern Georgetown and University of Colorado at Boulder, a few schools that have had some sports in the headlines lately. Just a couple. I mean, yeah. hot take, hot take on, on primetime real quick. This is the worst the CU is going to be. So, you know, they're, they're just getting started. They've won 4X more games this year than, than they did last year. And it's just the beginning of the journey. Although See, I, I, I do have some concerns as he's not going to be a long timer in Boulder. There are some teams in, in Florida that I worry may come calling. And it's where he's from and a little bit bigger programs than, than CU. But fingers crossed that the, it's just beginning. I like it. I mean, not not a hot take. It's warm. It's lukewarm. I like it. (laughs) 
but we appreciate you being here so much. We're going to we're gonna pick your brain, get a lot of information out of you today, and really want to thank you for being here. And thank all of our listeners again for tuning in to our podcast. So, Evan, without further ado, tell the world about you a little bit. Yeah, well, thanks for the intro, and Ben, thanks for joining us again today. That concludes our sports moment. We'll uh, try to kick off every episode with a little inside sports, maybe a little localized feedback from our guests. But we're super excited to have you as our as our first and uh, premier guest uh, to kick off our, our episodes, um, which is apropos because, yeah, so my journey, Dan, to your point, I've, I've been in retail for 20 years. I built brand products and managed brand channels for Target uh, as, as the brand uh, marketing team. And then moved into retail media slowly about nine years ago as that business started to just take its early shapes before it, it turned into Roundell. But I was there for that journey up until two and a half years ago when I moved over to the Albertsons Media Collective. Um, they were just going through a, a big in-housing, re-platforming of their retail media network, bringing everything in-house, building from scratch, getting partnerships built out, which is exactly where we started. Our partnership journey was with Ben at the Trade Desk. And the other thing I bring to our to our team, um, VP of, of Product and Innovation, is that innovation and collaboration side. So super passionate. This is my lifelong journey before I even started working, tinkering, playing, building, constructing, also a lot of breaking, but really in service of education and collaborative problem solving. So sometimes alone, sometimes with friends. That evolved into workplace experiences as well. And so we'll talk a little bit about that garage. Dan, if you want me to get into that now, happy to do so. I think so. Let's, you know, we've got this killer title for this wonderful podcast that we're doing, The Garage. And a lot of folks out there are probably wondering where in the heck that came from and how does that apply to retail media networks in, in, in totality. So give us a little, uh, little bit of flavor into where The Garage came from. Absolutely. So there's the mystique of The Garage has preceded the media collective. It's been around on the West Coast for some time for other companies. But the concept is really something all RMNs in any ad tech companies should adopt, and some have. In our case, you know, really collaboration, partnership, co-design, co-ownership is, is core to what, what the Retail Media Collective, the Albertsons Media Collective is really here to be that collaborator, partner, co-op garden, premier place for people to come and build and design together. And I hope other RMNs pick that up, Retail Media Networks, because going it alone, building silos has been the beginning of the RMN journey, and it creates a lot of friction for adoption. So we, we use the garage as a place to say, hey, we don't know everything. We can't build everything, right? Trade Desk has had decades of, of work, well, over a decade of hard work going into Trade Desk platforms, right? Are we going to be able to compete with that? Should we consider competing with that? Or should we hold hands and ask for a, a very transparent, humble, you know, co-branded way of building products together? And that's exactly what the garage provided. Ironically, Ben was our first guest in the garage as well um, when I joined the collective, he came in with his team. We designed, whiteboarded, had some lunch, talked through good, bad, uglies of, of how this product could come to life. And it was wonderful. So there were, the goal was to basically say, can we do something better together? So we didn't put a business a fiscal forecast against it. We really just took customer feedback. We took our creative minds, put them to work on a whiteboard, and came up with our, our autonomous audience and measurement collaboration. But beyond just that product, it's really the mindset, Dan, really. And that's what the podcast is here to reinforce. We can't get smarter if we're not learning and growing and building with our smart partners. And that goes the other direction too. Retailers have a ton of merchandise data. They know how a lot of that CPG product moves throughout the country. We can bring that to, get to light in a bigger way um, and help that industry, the ad tech industry, grow and evolve, just like they can help us bring our products to life. 
So it's all about the spirit of transparency, collaboration, and we bundle all that and call it our co-op garden approach. That's awesome, Evan. Yeah, I think that that, that spirit of, of innovation, forward thinking, makerspace, not being the being humble enough to not be the smartest in the room, but letting the room be the smartest. And so in the spirit of that, we've got Ben here. Ben, as you think through your time in the career, in your career, excuse me, describe any aha moments that led to some kind of bright spot creation, if you could. If you think back, what what were the what were the ingredients, if you will, for, for some kind of bright spot to be formed? Yeah, it's a great question. Be- before I answer that, I want to give some context because I think that'll help with, with my answer. So just for those of you unfamiliar with the Trade Desk, we're the largest independent digital buying platform that's used by advertisers and their media agencies to use data and decisioning to inform their digital media buys. It's also known as programmatic advertising. So we're a platform to buy programmatic advertising. Our platform can buy on, on many formats that we all know and, and love. So that includes display, includes mobile, and it includes connected television, audio you know, platforms, games, and so on and so forth. And within my role, I focus on the intersection of data from retail companies like Albertsons, as well as uh, measurement and connected television. My, my focus is on making sure the right ad is going to the right person at the right time. So audience targeting is a big part of that, right? Making sure you're reaching people who buy certain products. And so with that context, I want to kind of take you back where I started my career. I started my career actually as a a writer and an editor, and I worked for ESPN for a long time. And if you kind of rewind 15, 16 years, every day on ESPN.com was all about Tom Brady and and the New England Patriots. They were winning a lot of Super Bowls, you know, and he was dating a lot of supermodels. And it was an interesting time if, if you're into that sort of thing, if you're into football, if you're into Tom Brady. And I'm who isn't? Base- I mean, and, and who isn't, right? Well, so I'm not. And, and, <laughs> oh, and come that's on. Sort of the story, right? Well, so I-, I mean, but you had parallels with Tom Brady dating the supermodels, being f- super famous, right? I, <laughs> I mean, other it. than our it. parallel lives, yes. that wasn't sort of my, yeah. my, my focus, yeah. right? I, I'm a big baseball and basketball guy. You know, every Denver Nuggets article that was posted at, at that time, it was, you know, Carmelo Anthony era. I would, I would eat those articles up. And I always had a a belief like why are we curating espn.com with tom brady every day right why does everything have to be the new england patriots when there are you know four other big you know sport leagues in, in the us this is before soccer had taken off globally right there are you know 30 other nfl teams there are 30 nba teams and we were collecting all this data on consumer behavior right we knew at espn that I was going to read the Denver Nuggets articles. I was going to read the New York Mets. I'm a big Mets fan, right? We knew what all of our consumers were, were, were reading, what, what videos they were watching. Yet we were kind of curating what we thought was the most relevant news. And so it's a big leap for an editorial company like ESPN to you know, completely turn over content curation to, 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 to data or to, to machine learning, to AI. You know, there, it's an editorial company. I, and I understood that. I was on the editorial side. I was, I was one of the lead editors. But I started going to this idea of, well, if we can't do content curation, we should at least be doing advertising curation, right? We shouldn't have everybody who goes to ESPN.com be getting ads for, say, Gatorade, right? When Gatorade was trying to target athletes. A lot of sports fans are, are the antithesis of athletes, right? A lot of sports fans are athletes, right? But we should really be 
making sure that the right ads go into the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so at, around the same time, I started seeing ad choices, um, little buttons show up on our, on, our, on our 300 by 250s on ESPN.com. And I didn't know what programmatic advertising was, but I was smart enough to know that if ad choices was the sort of the, you know, the, the, the group that was serving the ads, that our sales team wasn't selling them and that something was you know, amiss. And so the aha moment I had there was actually not what led me here directly. But at first it was, well, if we're not selling the ads on ESPN.com, maybe we should figure out a way to create a premium product. So I launched essentially you know, branded content before it was called that on, on ESPN Digital Properties. My whole idea there was, you know what we do in print? Because I came from a print background. Um, I was like, you know, there's advertorials. Why don't we just do that digitally? So we started creating a lot of videos for the Nikes, the Jordan brand, the Under Armors, the Gatorades of the world, where we did product placement. And it was really, really innovative at the time. It was, it was really cool and it was a lot of fun. But this sort of idea of, of reaching the right people with the right message just kind of kept, kind of, you know, haunting me. And it was something that I couldn't let go and so I, I learned more about programmatic advertising, how it worked, and that's essentially how I ended up in this space. I left ESPN and ended up at a company called Data Logics, where we were taking purchase-based data, so what people were buying in store, and we were using that to create audiences to fuel into DSPs or walled gardens so you can reach people based on their buying behavior. So that, you know, somebody I'm – a, I'm a big Diet Coke fanatic. It's, it's my vice – you know, Diet Coke can reach me and remind me to, you know, to buy it on, on a weekly basis. If Evan doesn't buy soda, he buys maybe juice, Coke can target him with a Minute Maid ad. And so that way they're able to be really smart with where their media spend is going. But sort of the, the it all sort of my whole career since then, and that was about a dozen years ago now, but my whole career since then is really credited to this aha moment I had at ESPN when I realized that all this data was being collected on consumers and while maybe you don't want to use it to target people based on what content they're receiving, because there's still an element of watchdog within, within journalism, but for advertisers, they should be able to use that data to reach the right person with the right message at the right time and be really smart with every dollar that they spend. And I that love, really steered my, 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 my whole career and has led me to here today. I love that story, Ben. You really hit on the core tenets of what retail media networks are built on as well, you know. Our publisher, our um, articles on sports are really recipes and coupons and weekly circular and all the great products and promotions we bring to our website. That content can be curated in service of what we could call it personalization. We could call it targeted advertising, targeted content. I mean that is the expectation of a loyalty app or a, someone logging into a, a Safeway.com. So we get to take all of your history that you laid out so yeah. so succinctly, put a little personalization and targeting on top of it do content and ads when we own and operate our properties. That's the core tenant of the RMN, and, and that's likely why our, our partnership kicked off so quickly and so marvelously. Yeah. And I think kudos to Trade Desk, but you're not the only one. We're seeing it at Pinterest, Meta, Google. Everyone's investing in these retail media-specific teams. So yes, they're still selling their big DSP. They're still selling their big social media platform, but they're bringing a, an, a small army of, of retail experts or publisher experts data experts to round out the offering so that folks like Dan and I, who are maybe not as savvy on the engineering ad tech side, we're great at retailers, we're great at marketing, we might need some help with automation or AI or a trading desk. Great. Here's that company now stepping in our direction, which makes it really easy to partner when companies do that. Um, And it really makes it super simple to partner on collaboration and co-designing new products. 
you're bringing your expertise from a whole host of things outside of Trade Desk. We're bringing our host of retail knowledge, and it just makes innovation so much simpler. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to our time in the garage, right, our whole hypothesis was, you know, Albertsons is going to grow really quickly through on-site inventory, right? People who are going to albertsons.com and all of your different banners or their apps and, and buying their their products. But traffic is, is, is finite, right? There's only so many people who are going to buy online. But the data that you collect is extremely valuable within the open internet, right? Or, or some of the, the wall gardens you reference at the Pinterest of the world, right? And so there's an opportunity both for, for you as, as a RMN to grow your TAM, right? Grow it beyond on-site and tap into the infinite TAM of, of programmatic media. There is value for advertisers, right? So that they can be really smart with their dollar and make sure every dollar is going to the right buyers and they're not wasting inventory or, or media spend against people who never buy their product, right? A good example of that is if you're a diaper company, there's 4 million diapers born every year. Why would you want to do a demographic targeting, right? Or why would you want to buy right. linear TV when you know the vast majority of people who are going to see your ad are never going to be in market to buy a diaper, at least anytime soon, right? And so if you want to only reach people who are buying diapers, you can partner with Albertsons and the trade desk and reach them across connected television, across anywhere. That was sort of our hypothesis. Yeah. And, and the third hypothesis that we had is how can we make this ecosystem smarter and, and better and more privacy safe for consumers, right? And, and, and the way that Albertsons collects consent when, you know, members are, are getting their loyalty cards or buying on, uh, you know, on, on e-commerce provides a really clear value exchange between consumers. And that really meshed with sort of our belief within identity as the ecosystem changes, right? Moving mm -hmm. away from third-party cookies, moving to a consented, authenticated internet where consumer privacy is at the forefront. And those are sort of like our three tenants as, as we built this partnership and kind of brainstormed. And it all goes back to my ESPN days. You know, when you guys come together in the garage and, and you've referenced it a few times, Ben, Evan, you were there and, and you had these three hypotheses that you wanted to test and learn and get grimy. To tell our audience a little bit about the, the culture, what are the common elements when you think about forcing that bright spot, creating that innovation? Clearly, the industry was, was you had that aha moment at ESPN. Other people in the industry did as well, a la, you know, wave a magic wand, voila, we've got retail media networks. But as we start to create new iterations and evolve the industry a bit, what are those elements, those, those ingredients that have to be present for innovation to occur? Yeah, I can take this one, Ben. And, start and there. Just, start with Evan, and then and Ben chime perfect. in, please. Speaking of of smart people, Ben Tam, I'm going to take a swing at this one. Total available market. Total addressable market. My total apologies. addressable market. Yes. Thank you. Um, when you oh, talk with oh, all the acronyms <laughs> in the yeah, grocery I, I space, I need to get out of the, the acronym soup. The fact of, that we're this uh, far yeah. in and only one acronym that's I mean, pretty this good. Is, this is about give me a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> CTV, CDP. Oh man, Keep DSP. I love it. Everybody e does. ESPN, I'm going to say that that oh. one actually counts. <laughs> I do love that your initial mantra was to, you know, get you know the hockey content out to the hockey fans first, get the exactly. basketball content to the basketball fans. Yeah, we, we get enough you know, star quarterbacks, single team, right? There's more coasts <laughs> than the East Coast, which is funny. I'm living in the Midwest, and so we don't get a lot of love for our, our local teams. But that personalized content is, is key, and it is the tenant to the retail media network premise, as, as discussed. So to, to reference Dan's question, how do we bring the, the ingredients to bear? I love that analogy, Dan, coming from a grocer and your, your background with grocery is apropos. But when I think about partnerships and putting our humble hat on to say, hey, when we leave our nest, when, we, when we're done optimizing our on-site app and site and store experience, which 
a retailer needs to do and own and control that, you need to leave some of that control behind. And now you're reaching over to a social platform, the open web via a trade desk. The control is given immediately, right? So we're not the one making that final ad decision. We get to control some of the creative, maybe some of the budget and strategy. But sometimes the client, in this case, a CPG or an agency, wants to have hands-on keyboard, wants to be um, the decider on how optimizations should play out. You know, they've got big ideas, big strategies. And so do we need to control the whole thing? When do we, when do we hand it off to somebody smarter? When do we you know, start and stop our monetization strategy within that journey? It's the same journey as on-site, but we don't have to own every piece of the puzzle. And I, that's what really clients and agencies are asking for as retail media grows beyond just the shopper uh, relationship direct with, with the retailer and CPG and into something a little bigger, right? We want to go up that funnel. Trade Desk plays a role in, in the awareness, consideration, shopper, and loyalty funnel. Retail has kind of been at the bottom historically in that conversion shopper e-com space. Well, all the behavior, all the loyalty, all the new customer acquisition tools that we have, we can move up that funnel and bring valuable products to an awareness campaign or to a national branded campaign. But we're not always invited to that table because we've got great big agencies who are brilliant at doing this. They've got linear TV capacity. You know, they should be in charge of some of those decisions and control. And we just need to show up with a humble product that enables a CPG brand to do better with their agency. So that ingredient is perfect, Dan. In some cases, when it's on site, we'll build that whole enchilada. We'll wrap it, put it on the plate, bring it out to your table, tell you how pretty you are. And, uh, and then I send need the bill. that. God, I need that in my life. Keep telling me I'm pretty, Evan. <laughs> but on the other side, if someone's going this multi-channel, maybe they want their larger enterprise MTA or MMO models to pick up performance, we don't have as much of a role to play in that space. And if we don't bring a humble, digestible, malleable product to that space, we won't be invited to play. Um, those agencies have their own on in-house teams for execution. They have their own audiences. They may not be as good as what we think uh, a soft drink brand with 14 years of purchase history has within a retailer. But if we can't, within a frictionless way, get that asset over to them for um, the proper application in their process, then the product doesn't exist. So a trade desk has been a perfect place for us to take our assets, boil them down to the individual ingredients, and then pick and choose the ingredients that make sense to place on the trade desk for what we call a self-serve product. And then we have a spectrum of available services. We can do the whole thing, white glove, or we can just hand over some of our assets in a safe, clean room, privacy, uh, uh, modern privacy safe way for other experts to execute. And, and that spectrum will continue to evolve and grow. More, cap more capabilities will show up on platforms like the Trade Desk as long as RMNs are willing to, to put on that collaboration hat and find good ways to get their assets out there. Yeah. So, so stay humble, stay hungry. Ben, from your point of view, what do you see as, as some of those quintessential ingredients for, for inspiration to occur? Evan touched on this for sure, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper into it. To me, I think some of the key ingredients for, for inspiration and for innovation is really around diversity, right? Bringing people together who have different backgrounds or who can complement each other with, with different perspectives. I think if you think of the way Evan described the Trade Desk and Albertsons partnership, we were really complementary in nature, right? Albertsons had really great on-site solutions that they were developing. Trade Desk was a really good place for off-site. Evan had 20 years of retail experience. I had tremendous pr programmatic experience and, and brand marketing experience, right? We both had sort of a common idea around privacy and, and customer centricity, 
um, and around pro- solving problems for advertisers. So we had a common framework around what we wanted to do, right? We wanted to be innovative. We wanted to solve problems for advertisers, right? Understand their, their needs and build products that met their needs. We wanted to do it all in a privacy-safe framework, but we came at it from very different lenses. And I think that to me, that's the recipe for innovation. I really try to foster that within my organization as well. If I didn't, I'd be a hypocrite, right? Given that I spent the first half of my career as, as a writer and editor and spent, you know, on the editorial side at ESPN and other publications. And then I came into the ad tech and the ad tech world was really welcoming to me. But I think that ad tech at times can be somewhat homogenous. And I think what that does is that leads mm-hmm. to doing the same thing over and over and over again. What I try to do is I try to bring people who understand marketing, understand advertising, but might have a slightly different background. Because I think if you have a slightly different background, slightly different experience, you're going to bring ideas to our organization that maybe we hadn't thought of before because we've kind of lived in this ad tech bubble, right? A good example of that is I I hired about two years ago, soon after I started the Trade Desk, I hired sort of my head of North America retail media from a large agency, right? For for years, she had helped some of the largest CPGs in, in the country kind of build out their tech stacks, build out their data strategies. She hadn't necessarily worked in retail media, but Mm -hmm. she understood what what CPGs needed. She understand the technology that they were investing in, and she had a really deep understanding of that. And so I, I thought that she could be a really valuable part of our team. And she quickly learned retail media, learned, built relationships with retailers, learned the ecosystem really well. And now she's known as an expert in retail media and retail data who speaks at conferences across the country. But she didn't come from a traditional retail media background. She didn't come with a huge Rolodex with with retailers, but she had a really a great you know intellectual curiosity. She had a really deep understanding of advertising and, and what the needs were. And so we brought her in to kind of fill out our team. I brought some people in from RMNs as well. I brought people in from data companies, but I've really tried to bring in a somewhat diverse organization with different backgrounds so that we can all complement each other. You know, I think that when you have overlapping skill sets, whether it's it's a team or it's it's an organization and a company, you're missing the opportunity to be complementary and you're kind of just doing the same thing over and over. I'm going to bring sports into it one more time. I, I apologize, nice. Devin. No, let's do it. But I mentioned this earlier. I, I'm a huge Denver Nuggets fan. And, and I think one of the reasons that they won the championship, one of the primary reasons, it's not well, – it's partly because they have the best basketball player in the world today. I mean, there's that. that. But <laughs> their, their GM talks a lot about this, that he doesn't want any overlapping parts. He wants everybody in the team to be complementary, right? And so his first big trade was to trade two fan favorites within the Nuggets. So Monte Morris and Will Barden. Who, who, Will Barden was sort of a really longtime Nugget. Monte Morris was their sixth man, their first bench player, who was, who was really popular within the team. And they traded him for a player named Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who, you know, isn't an all-star. He's not a flashy player. But what he did was he brought a new skill set to the team, perimeter defense, that they struggled with for years. And they, they didn't have a player like that before. They had a lot of overlapping parts. They had a lot of shooters. They had a lot of offensive first players. And they really needed somebody who could, you know, play defense in the perimeter. And so... That helped them become a, an actual team with a, a really complimentary starting five that was the best in the league and, and won their first championship. And I think that's really important in business too, right? Build complementary skill sets. Don't hire everybody from the same place mm. because different opinions and different ideas are going to help you grow. I love that. I, and, and Ben's knowledge runs deeper than sports and ad tech, if you can believe it. He can go as, as deep and detailed into bands and concerts and venues. It's kind of a, a beautiful mind you've, you've got walking around over there, Ben. <laughs> well, thank you. The, uh, the, the thing that struck me as you were talking through that, some of the biggest innovators throughout time have been cross-pollinated, educated. 
right? Yeah. So Einstein was a good example, but you, you've learned about this type of engineering. Let's say it's fluid dynamics. You're bringing it now to a new industry or a new discipline. And those ideas and patterns, you, you look for them in the new world, which is the unique way of trying to solve a problem. And if you've got the humble hat on, to Dan's preference earlier, uh, and you've got an ability to partner, so you're bringing in people uh, with great partnership skills as well as knowledge, that's the recipe for success. Because in, especially in retail media, we're moving beyond generation two or chapter two is how I've referred it, to it in the past into chapter three, which is this new era of in-store excellence, full merchandise support. So maybe dropping the media side of retail media and turning it into a retail CPG uh, nirvana state, bring to bear all of those assets which go beyond just media and putting them into a, a, an annual plan that really works in service of what the customer is here to do. And that's, what, that's why we both have jobs, Ben, is to make the customer happy. That's the ultimate goal. And so to do that, man, we can't wait for a trade desk to solve that for us, right? We can't wait for a big SAP or NRF POS system, point of sale system. The, there's no one company out there that has ever done that before. And so we have to build it together. And that only happens through collaboration, partnership, innovation, and that humble hat wearing. It, it also helps when you've got folks with those other disciplines because then they can recognize patterns and bring in those other solutions that are maybe technology-based or just business-based and it makes that problem-solution solutioning so much more productive. Can, can I add two, two terms to the hungry and, and humble? Yes, um, Those are the two, right? Hungry, humble. Yeah. yeah. Hungry, humble. Start there. So I mean, I think look the, at me. The other look two at me. I'm add, always hungry. Always we're, we're, hungry. Always hungry. I'm hungry yeah. now. Yeah. Um, the other two I would add would be empathetic and creative. Um, empathetic in the sense of, you know, to really solve problems and to be innovative, you have to understand the problems that your consumers are facing, right? Your 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 customers are facing. Right? Exactly. So you need to have empathy for them. You need to say, okay, here's the challenge you're facing as as an advertiser in our case, or as a you know as as a supplier in in your case, right? How do I solve those problems? You have to have empathy for them. And then you have to have creativity. You have to kind of think through how to solve those problems and not just go back to what's always been done mm -hmm. because the problems that advertisers are facing today, they hadn't really faced yesterday, right? If you think of what's happening with identity loss, if you think about what's happening with new channels, if you think about just macroeconomic challenges that they're facing, right? These are, these are somewhat new challenges that they're facing. So you need creativity to think of new solutions that meet their needs, right? So the first is you need to be empathetic. You need to have a deep understanding of what they're facing. And then you need to be creative to solve those problems. And honestly, those are two of the key sort of pillars that I look for when hiring a team mm. is people who are empathetic, who can really see the ecosystem and, and th see things through the lens of our customers, of our clients, and then creativity in solving those problems. I think that's really important. And, and believe me, you guys, when you, when you talk about diversifying your team and, and having some rich backgrounds, I love it because I'm a fifth grade teacher who does marketing now. So somebody took a chance on me back in the day. I really, really appreciate giving the opportunity to bring a different knowledge base to bear on some of the, the problems we have within the industry and try to solve those. And I love that you guys are optimistic, you're positive, you're waxing poetic. It's great. But let's talk to the folks that are stuck in a system where the that's how we've always done it mentality is pervasive. Right. What would you say to them on how they could create a tipping point or, or, or jumpstart some kind of change within their organization to create the culture you both thrive in within innovation? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things I'll touch on. I think the first is to, to celebrate small wins, right? I think at times um, organizations wait till a, a huge win happens before it's acknowledged. But I think if you're stuck in a rut, 
um, and you're, you're not innovating, it's going to take a while for those big wins to happen. And you need to keep people inspired and, and motivated. So you got to celebrate small wins because small wins snowball into bigger wins. And then those bigger wins snowball into to huge wins. Right. So I think it's really about, you know, to, to create and foster an, an organization of innovation. you got to celebrate small wins and you got to build upon those. But I think more importantly than that, you got to be comfortable to fail. This is something I tell my kids all the time. I, I don't think I, I was taught this as a kid as much as I, I would have liked to have been. But if you're going to succeed in anything, you're going to fail a ton of times beforehand, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things I love about the trade desk is we move fast. We build things. Not everything we build is going to be successful. Most of it will be, but sometimes things won't be, right? And that's okay because we tried, right? It's better to try and build something than to not try and to be stuck in quicksand and, and wait for, for perfect, right? I mean, it's, it's a cliche. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. But I feel really lucky and blessed that, that the Trade Desk um, has a culture of innovation because you know, we're comfortable to try new things. Again, it's data-driven. We come with, you know, ideas based in, you know, understanding who our consumers are, um, having hypotheses around what will happen, and measuring it, having sort of ways that we're going to measure it and try success. But we we also have a, a room open for, for innovation and, and understanding that sometimes you're going to fail and nobody's, you know, like let go if you fail. As long, as long as you tried and it was based in data, that that's okay. And I think ESPN was this way as well, right? I, I led a lot of the new business um, businesses at ESPN, built a lot of new products, built new magazines, built new websites. And I love that ESPN also had that room for innovation. But I think the common denominator between the trade desk and, and ESPN is that it was okay to fail, right? Obviously, you don't want to fail, but in order to build new things, in order to have success, you got to take risks. And if you're not going to take risks, you're never going to innovate. So I think to me, it's all about fostering a, a culture where people aren't afraid to make mistakes, where people are encouraged to, to try new things, again, within data, you know, within reason, things that are data-driven, have clear hypotheses, clear testing plans. But, you know, people have that encouragement. And then also move fast if it's not going to be success. I think a lot of people are scared to admit failure. And so they mm -hmm. keep trying to build upon things that, that just aren't working and they continue to waste time. So I think it's about being able to move fast within that failure and then move to, to something else that, 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 that will work. So I think to me, it's really celebrating small wins and then having a, a culture that celebrates and, and embraces risk and embraces potential failure and, and moves fast and innovates from it because they've built really clear plans of attack and, and um, you know, growth plans and objectives and, and such. I think that's really, uh, really smart. I think one of the things, if I can interject before uh, before Evan adds to it, is as a former teacher, one of the things you're 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 always preached to in any professional development setting is teaching kids how to fail. But the but what I would always take it to the next step of is, yeah, it's great. Teach them how to fail. Do we ever teach them what to do next? So that's a great. You're point. allowed to fail. Cool. Now what? What are you going to do for to pick yourself back up? So uh, when you can create that environment of it's okay to fail, you know, with data, you, you, you tried in an intelligent way to do something and the failure occurred. Great. What's the next step? What do you do after that? Or you just sit and pout about it. Right. So, uh, I really appreciate that. And so Evan, in thinking through some of those things, what would you advise those that are stuck in that situation to do? Yeah. It's going to be difficult to add to, uh, to Ben's answer. Ben, but uh, a couple, you can do it. You can we'll, do it. We'll put a couple of pieces of icing. You have a beautiful mind as well. You got <laughs> it. We'll ice that cake for Ben. The, the org structure is a big part of it, and 
um, specifically speaking to retailers who've been doing excellent work for 50, 60, 70 years on the merchandise side and now maybe launching media networks, deciding if they're going to bring it in-house or go through an agency. I'll, I'll speak from that type of organizational structure, but it, it applies pretty ubiquitously beyond retail. But there's old businesses. There's old mindsets. I shouldn't say old. There's the way that things are being done now that, that maybe is the core part of your business value. And then insert a retail media network on top of that. It's, it's a pretty big fundamental shift in a new revenue stream, a new way of thinking. And so being able to bring an education layer, a humble education layer, you hit on it, Dan, to the other partners internally that need to support your failure or fast-moving innovation, changing the way the website and app looks and feels in service of, of the media network, requires partnership, education, patience, um, and a clear list of value props. So data. Let data replace ego on why this new ad unit, why this new video component needs to be there on the site. It's not in service necessarily of the retailer, but it is in service of the larger retailer goal, which is making that client, that customer, the CPG, happy. And so being able to tell their story or their recipe through a new video ad unit is incrementally valuable to both sides. But without education and, and hand-holding and fast-fail uh, mentalities, it starts to feel like a, an internal struggle, right? Some, some power struggles over control and who gets, to, who gets to be in charge of the shopper experience. So that being able to move past that, which thankfully Albertsons is, is packed full of, of strong partnership leadership, we've been able to move quickly. Getting outside of the organization, it really uh, is a, a plethora of wonderful opportunity for partnership that, that matches the, the, what I just described. Ad tech, agencies, everyone's hungry to come and partner and help build things together. So knowing that you don't have to go it alone, that's the other thing. So fail fast, but build together because then you don't have to maybe carry the entire load. You've got a strong partnership with Ben. He can help bring engineers to solve part of the problem. We can use a live ramp in the middle to solve part of the problem. So knowing your, let's use a sports analogy, knowing the baseball field, you don't have to put a person on every position. Maybe you're bringing the pitcher and the catcher and you're renting a couple other services through an agency and then relying on the smart people at a live ramp trade desk to, uh, to bring, bring up the other uh, rest of the team. That's how we've been able to move quick with our innovation. The, the other little components I would add to that, obviously fail fast. Yeah, pick up, pick up your ball and, and don't, don't cry for too long. There should be a celebration of that. But there has to be space to do that. So either the two models I've seen work and the one model I've seen fail repeatedly, uh, I'll start with the, the failed one, is a siloed kind of ivory tower innovation track. And usually they are cross departments within a company. They're the innovation lead. They've got the PhDs and in the theoretical best way to innovate for that industry. But without the practical application of those ideas, the ability to test within a couple of weeks, if that idea has any merit, basically, will somebody buy it? That can only happen through the practitioners and the experts that are distributed across the company. So having an ability to do innovation in a distributed manner, you could call it matrixed, you could call it you know, your fun Friday afternoon is dedicated to innovation, or there's micro-innovation teams within each of the departments. Now you've got discipline and expertise and the ability to put an idea into market really quickly because that's where the data comes from. It's not through theoretical whiteboarding. It's got to get into the hands of the, the practitioners and the people who are going to say this is good, bad, or ugly, and here's how I'd improve it or here's how I would kill it and then move on to the next thing. So getting innovation mindsets into everybody, as many people as possible, or having pockets of people within the teams who drive that is a good way to bring day-to-day -day innovation to, to life.
I really like that. And, and for our audience, just know that in the next few episodes, uh, we'll try to limit the sports analogies, but they really ring true. I mean, it's a team, <laughs> it's a team game. So I uh, really appreciate those, t- those insights from you guys on that. The other thing I would add there is don't let structure limit your innovation, right? Guess, check, and refine worked in high school math. It can work here too. So uh, <laughs> go ahead and take the reins off a little bit. I love the fail fast, the the fear, get rid of the fear a little bit. Try something. If it fails, okay, work on it and improve it. I like that. So one of the things we want to do within the podcast also um, is ask our guest a couple questions uh, that uh, we'll ask all our guests throughout this podcast. The first one being, if you could change one thing in the industry, Ben, wave your magic wand and change one thing, what would it be and why? Yeah, I think it'd be a focusing on utility, right? I think that um, our, our industry is, is rife with buzzwords and, and really cool new products that launch that don't always have um, utility to them. And, and so for me, one of the things that, that, that I just focus on in general is – Again, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating is really start from a lens of what problem am I solving and then adopt technology or adopt new strategies or, or innovate to truly solve those problems, right? As opposed to, you know, invest in technology that's a solution looking for a problem, right? And I think that happens so much in our industry. And so, I mean, you know, I, I think that's what's so special about our partnership with Albertsons, right? It wasn't like Evan and I were thinking, you know, we, we like each other. Let's figure out a way to work together. It was really this hypothesis that the Internet's changing. There's a need for more customer-friendly, privacy-safe, you know, data in the ecosystem. There's a need for Albertsons to grow beyond their on-site properties and, mm-hmm. and, and use the, the total addressable market of the open Internet <laughs> And um, advertisers are looking to use, you know, spend their money in, in, in a more, you know, intelligent way for their, especially their brand marketing dollars, right? So how do we solve those problems? How do we build an innovation? How do we build a product that's innovative that, that solves those problems? So we really started from a utility lens, from a need state lens. Um, and, and that's what I would love for this industry to continue to lean toward as opposed to start with cool technology and then look for a solution after. I think for me, it would really be start with a problem and then design your solutions around solving that problem. Yeah, that's great. I, I'll use a grocery analogy here. You know, when you walk down our pizza aisle or carbonated beverage aisle, there are so many options available to consumers, flavors, caffeinated, non-caffeinated, gluten-free. I mean, we give them a plethora of choice. I mean, that is the grocery. That's how Safeway, Julasco, Albertsons, we have to operate with that shopper so hyper-focused in mind. And they want choice. They want price, choice on price. They want available dietary trends in there. They want to see that reflected in their uh, in their grocery aisle. We do that in our sleep at a grocery store. It's a little harder to do it in the ad tech space um, unless you have strong partnerships and, a, and the fail-fast mentality. But th- that's kind of the, the required uh, business environment that we're moving into. CPGs, have the flexibility and ability to execute media in lots of different ways. If we don't have a product that meets that demand, the gluten-free crust, the dairy-free frozen pizza, um, the veg, we're just going to miss out on that uh, opportunity to partner and tell a better story with, with our CPGs. Can you still grow a retail media business? Can you still grow an ad tech business on a single vertical, a single strategy for sure? But you're not building diversity, uh, which is you're basically 
moving back on sustainability because change is inevitable. Yeah. And so we want products available in any avenue that a CPG finds value in and then look for ad tech partners who can help bring that to market in a safe way. So I, I love it's, – it's going back to that ingredients yeah. being turned into recipes and then being deployed in the best, safest, most productive way possible. Yep, for sure. Really good. And uh, the last question that I'm going to ask you, Ben, uh, that we want to make sure all of our guests answer because, God forbid, we have a little bit of fun. We're in an industry filled with not just acronyms but buzzwords. What are the next industry buzzwords that you see on the horizon? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say this is a new buzzword. Ooh, Um, I like it. People have been using it. But I think as an industry, we're getting close to identity actually having a definition, right? But I think it's not going to be a buzzword in the sort of loaded sense that it it doesn't mean anything. I I think identity – is going to become the center of, of almost all advertising activity, right? So if what Google says is, is true, third-party cookies are going to start going away next year, right? And, and I think a lot of people have known that's going to happen. I mean, you have to kind of be living under a rock if you're in, in, if you're in our industry and, and you didn't know that was going to happen. But uh, not many people have actually done the work to prepare for third-party cookies going away. They've kind of um, dipped their toes in the water a little bit. But there's a lot of work that's going to have to go in. A lot of new strategies are going to have to be deployed. And, and I think that that's really going to become the, the, the big focus area maybe in 2024, right? It's going to mean that every, every advertiser, every publisher, every ad tech company, every retailer is going to need an identity strategy. It also means that my partners on the retail data side are going to need to think about how they use platforms or, or you know, how they securely transact their data across the open internet, across Pinterest, as as Evan said earlier, across the ecosystem. Our advertisers on the trade desk need to do the same, right? They need to make sure they can maximize their first-party data in a safe and secure Mm -hmm. way that's privacy safe, right? So it's not a – again, it's not a new buzzword, but I think that the identity at large is going to become probably the most important thing that people start talking about within the ecosystem in 2024. And it kind of goes back to my point earlier about utility, right? I think this year has been all about AI, and, and AI is amazing. And it, it's funny, I think AI gets thrown around a lot as, as something new because of ChatGPT's release in the past past year and a half or so. The reality is AI has been the center of, of, of our platform, of the trade desk, since 2015, right? It's what fuels a lot of our optimizations. It's the co-pilot to the planners that do all the upfront planning. So AI is a buzzword that is, uh, you know, is is really been a big part of our ecosystem for quite some time. And I think identity is going to be the the, the next big thing. I love that. I uh, had the pleasure of sitting through Ben's uh, panel this week at Adweek on AI, and uh, he's got some prolific points of view on how that gets decoupled into modular pieces, kind of like that ingredient and deployed in safe, kind of manageable but controlled ways versus this it's going to solve everything all the time concept, which can get uh, can get a little uh, over-aggressive when you, when you talk to the bigger AI evangelists out there. It, it's a practical application of that tool, just like a clean room, just like your cloud provider. Now AI has got a little more upside and a little more excitement, but it really is uh, one more tool in the tool belt to help round out that that full package. The other thing you hit on with that identity, if you're building a house – the identity is the foundation, yep. and all these other things are nice to have: windows, you know, lofted ceilings. But that foundation, without it, uh, that that house is not going to stand. And you're right when you think about advertising in general. Identity's been a bit of an afterthought. It's just kind of worked. the The proliferation of cookies and ad IDs uh, has just been available, and now it's not going to be in a in a much different way than it's 
it's been at risk forever. Everyone's been having the yeah. death of the cookie. I feel pretty confident Google's um, delivering this time. You're seeing some deprecation already happen in DV360. There's a percent of those IDs already disappearing. Google's showing up this time with with the actual death of the cookie. I, I think it's a good thing, though. It right? is. I mean, it, it's funny. Like cookies, third party cookies, were never actually meant to be advertising tools, right? They ended up becoming them, and it's created an entire industry like 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 ours, right? But to the theme of everything else we've said, the industry has evolved beyond cookies, right? You have retail media for on site. You have connected television. You have audio. You have gaming. You have mobile, and but yet we continue to rely on cookies and talk about the deprecation of them is going to you know be detrimental to the industry, and and that's why I think that people need to evolve beyond them um, and, and really use the tools that 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 are customer safe, privacy safe, and that's why I think so many of the new buzzwords you're going to hear are going to be all around authentication, around non-authenticated solutions, or, or all around identity. Yeah, absolutely, and. Fortunately for the retailer media network fans out there, I mean, that is the core proposition of, of a loyalty program. It's frequent, high-fidelity identity, often online. And then we really, our job is to find safe, uh, legal ways to, to put that into market, right? Exactly. And it. we yeah. manage and control that through trusted partnerships. And we can bring a layer of confidence to the marketer that they're talking to the right person at the right time without leveraging contextual or going taking three steps back to some of those macro-level uh, strategies that, that proliferated in the 90s, uh, while honoring the more modern and, I think, good-for-the-consumer uh, legal restrictions around consumer data. I mean, it's, it is good for everybody except folks without first-party data. What, what, actually, what, what, what I think would be great is you layer in contextual, but more just to reach the right people at the right environment, right? So contextual exactly. becomes not a targeting solution, but it becomes a contextual solution, like a relevancy solution. And so if you layer on data on context, on the most premium inventory in the open internet, like CTV, it's a game changer for the industry. You guys are so smart. Like I just sit here and gain IQ points just listening, which is the whole <laughs> point of this podcast is for those listening to gain IQ points. Must and be you a guys, small baseline, Dan. Cause, uh, uh, listen, the I'm, bar I'm, with <laughs> me is really low. So um, all good there. <laughs> ben, Evan. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both in studio in New York while I'm sitting isolated and lonely in Boise, Idaho, but uh, but it's been a, a remarkable journey through this podcast today. Ben Sylvan with The Trade Desk, super thankful uh, to have you included in this first, and I'm going to say it, I know it's going to hurt on, uh, on any kind of production on the back end, because what if this hops out of order, but this is the first podcast we've done, um, and you are the premier guest that we've had on it, so thank you so much for providing your insights, your intelligence, and, and making us better and look good. But uh, thank you for being here. Evan, uh, travel safe, of course. Anything you want to add to wrap this thing up? Otherwise, I'll kick you guys into the Big Apple. No, oh, Dan, always the gracious host. Just a thank you to the listeners out there. I mean, we're here to educate and, uh, and get educated ourselves. So love feedback. I know Ben's a voracious learner and reader. We try to be that as well. We've got ideas and opinions, but we, uh, we won't be bringing the best product to market without everybody contributing and leaning in. So feedback is always welcome. Thank awesome. you guys so much for having me. I truly feel privileged to be on the podcast and for the to have this partnership. So thank you guys. You're very welcome. And if you want just to end this whole thing out, go ahead and give it Go Nuggets, even though I'm a jazz fan. <laughs> go Nuggets. The season there you go. starts less than a week from today. There All you right. go. Super excited. All right, uh, fans of the podcast, thank you for joining us in the garage. We'll see you guys on episode two, where we're going to talk about taking inventory. What does that okay. mean?